I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. At the time, I thought, oh, I'll never survive this. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm. But if that hadn't fallen apart, I would never have looked to do something else with my heart and my mind, right? And I wouldn't have started Zorch. And then when Zorch, oh my gosh, that was the, my greatest achievement in my life. When that fell apart, or I lost control, I thought, well, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. But then I felt that stirring inside that said, well, then fix it. Nicole Loftus just started her second company and is CEO of SkinX, the idea for which began when she lost her company, Zorch. She is vulnerable as she shares how she made mistakes during her reign at the company, offering great advice to entrepreneurs about what to do and not do around raising capital. Nicole has an excellent and unique perspective about networking as a method of generating business and found that being more targeted has worked for her. She has developed deep business and personal relationships with important mentors, which began by simply writing personal notes. Her passion and energy come through. Enjoy Nicole Loftus. Today I have with me Nicole Loftus, who is founder and CEO of SkinX, an innovative funding platform with a mission to build a better, friendlier model for funding entrepreneurs. SkinX brings Americans together to invest, create jobs, and fuel innovation. Prior to launching SkinX, Nicole was the founder and CEO of Zorch, which disrupted the $20 billion advertising merchandise space with Nicole's innovative tech platform. When Nicole led the company, Zorch was recognized by Inc. Magazine as the eighth fastest growing company in the U.S. and number one woman-led company in the country. At Zorch, Nicole won exclusive contracts with the biggest advertisers in the world. Corporations such as AT&T, Citigroup, and State Farm have all been Zorched and saved millions by sourcing branded goods through the Zorch portal. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you for having me. You've had a very interesting background, and I'm really looking forward to getting into some of the, some of the things you've gone through and the advice that you can give women. Um, these companies that you've led are very interesting, and I really had to do a little research to understand exactly what what they did and and listen to you. But describe what Zorch does. You began the company at your kitchen table, and you grew it, and it just really began with an idea. Tell us about the company. Well, the company is... Uh still today doing well and, and providing Fortune 500 companies with uh, all of their needs in the branded merchandise space. So anything with uh, a logo on it, shirts, pens, mugs, hats, that sort of thing. And when I, before I started it, I was working in the industry at a company that is now Staples. And um, at that company, I saw how the supply chain worked. You'd buy Bic pens from Bic and you'd, we'd be the middleman. And then there were our clients at, you know, AT&T or City or wherever. And I thought, I saw all these inefficiencies and all these costs and my customers were just experiencing pain every day in not only the uh, ordering process, but also the cost. It was just like, you've got to do something about this. And at the same time, I was starting to read about these other industries that had eliminated middleman redundancy, like Orbitz, which eliminated the travel agent. You know, I'm dating myself, but some of us in the old days would have to yeah. go to a travel agent to get your tickets. And yes, I thought, 
why can't we do a similar model? So it wasn't, I can't take full credit for the model and how innovative it was. It was just a classic disintermediation model that others had done that I did to ours, where I would allow big pens to finally communicate directly with the end user. And until Zorch, that was unheard of. You'd never let, you know, you were the middleman for a reason. So what we did was we got out of the way and let those two talk about their orders and the customer had a better experience. We were profitable to lower margins. We could pass some savings along. It's a win-win for everyone. And it's funny, I had a client at City. Uh, she ran supplier diversity, Diane Ashley. She's amazing. She's still uh, helping women and minority entrepreneurs get business. Mm. Um, and Diane said, you know, Nicole, when we first met, we first launched the program. She pulled me aside. She said, you know, your model is um, the female mentality applied to business. And she really caught me off guard. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, your model is about getting out of the way and letting these two parties communicate. And you don't need to be in the middle. You don't need to have an ego. You don't need to be touching everything. You just trust that the tech you built will allow the two to communicate. And that's a women's mentality to business. And I just loved that. And I never forgot it. I was so grateful to her for pointing that out. And I think it is true, you know, to be able to, a lot of people build great tech or they build a great model, but they have this inability to really just get out of the way and let, trust your own creation <laughs> to do its job yeah. and let two parties have an experience where you don't have to be in the room. And so I really enjoy right. that. Yeah, it's a different approach to business than, we talked about this, that uh, men have a different approach than women in that regard. It's almost like, and this is stereotyping, but, you know, the the men, uh, from what I've seen, still want to be in the deal. You know, they mm -hmm. want to put the two together and kind of be in the deal. But women can kind of say, you guys are getting along. I'm going to make money in doing my thing. Right. And you guys just, uh, you know, you, you guys can deal with each other directly. I don't have to have my ego right there being involved. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah, it's uh, that's interesting. So, um, how did how did Zorch make money then? Uh, being putting the two together, Bix, you know, Big Pens with Citicorp. The same way any other distributor in our industry does, we uh, they mark up their products. It's just the markup can be less because we have less work to do, right? So if our mm -hmm. technology is doing the work for us, and we do a lot of work on the front end, we, I can say have it, I have, <laughs> uh, they do a lot of work on the, back in my day, we used to do a lot of work on the front end and build a beautiful collection of merchandise. Again, so that if you do all the prep work up front and you have trust in what you've built, then you're even more comfortable kind of getting out of the way. So, mm -hmm. um, we make money just the way, same way everyone else in the industry does. We mark up the pens and the shirts and the mugs and the hats. Our markup is just a lot less because we have a lot less overhead than anyone else. I see. Yeah, I see. Good. We're going to come back to Zorch and some things that happened there that I think uh, you've got some great advice for other entrepreneurs um, in terms of raising money. But uh, tell us about SkinX. It uh, sounds like it's gearing up. It's coming out maybe in the fall. Um, Tell us uh, the concept behind SkinX and how it will be marketed. Yeah, so SkinX uh, is, came out of my those experiences you alluded to a minute ago. Uh, I had some pretty tough experiences raising capital for my business. And then I started researching, is it just me that's having these problems or is, are the problems systemic? And it was turned out to be the latter of the two. And I said, you know what, I am going to, if I built a better model for selling tchotchkes, damn it, I can build a better model for 
funding businesses. And I decided I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing it. And that's SkinX is the result of that. Although we're announcing to the public in the fall, the company is very real. Uh, We have built over the last few years incredible technology that will help founders and funders uh, meet and do diligence together. Uh, We've built amazing technology called the Resource Hub, which is live today at helpforfounders.com where any entrepreneur can find their local resources to help them grow. Um, But to answer your question, uh, SkinX is a new way to fund entrepreneurs in that we are opening up this system, this game, this rigged game, if you will. We're opening it up to the public and we're letting every American uh, and and really reaching out to every American to say, you need to get in this game. You've been shut out and we're going to give you full access. This is really full participation capitalism by uh, engaging everyone in the act of funding the growing innovative businesses across the country. Hmm. Yeah, um, it almost sounds like... Um a bit like crowdfunding. How would yeah. you compare it to crowdfunding? It's uh, very different. And I had hoped when I started Skin and I'd heard about crowdfunding, I'd hoped that that could be the answer. But it's not for us because we, um, the reason we want to get engaged the public is that we acknowledge the fact that we are more powerful in the aggregate. When we are together doing something, we can accomplish anything. When you are an individual, Uh, it's more difficult. So crowdfunding is an individual sport like golf. Skin X is a team sport like basketball or football or, you know, it's a, Mm -hmm. it takes all of us together. So skin crowdfunding is you invest in one company and that's the one transaction. Skin X is a fund. It's kind of like a mutual fund and that everyone buys shares in the fund. Uh, We are highly regulated, federally regulated. um, Yes. Which is a lot different. Yes. Um, and uh, so the investors are more protected. The shareholders are protected. We're also investing in many different companies. So you're not stuck with one. You're diversifying not only your risk, but your opportunity. So uh, SkinX is very different from crowdfunding, um, other, but we're similar in that we all just want to get more access uh, mm-hmm. and we want to get more money in the hands of entrepreneurs. So I celebrate crowdfunding like crazy. I'm just choosing to do it a little, a lot differently. Mm-hmm. And um, lastly, I think that it's important that when we are giving people access, we um, reach out to those that might not even know that we exist. What I mean mm-hmm. by that is crowdfunding, if you look at even Robinhood or Acorns uh, who are buying and selling publicly traded uh, companies. We're doing privately held companies, the most lucrative investments. Mm-hmm. But when you look at a Robinhood or an Acorns um, and all the crowdfunding apps like Republic and all the other ones, they are targeting a very specific group of consumer. They're targeting people like me and you, people that read Fast Company or the Wall Street Journal. They are not targeting the everyday American who loves the masked singer, doesn't read the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal, isn't yeah. really sure who the representative is in Congress, but you know, they are the American people and we need to get them in the game. And that's another really big way that SkinX is so different. We want to get mm-hmm. everyone's skin in the game uh, because we all already have skin in the game. We're already in this together. Yeah. yeah and, and there will be voting, right? You vote on the companies that, uh, that, that 
will be invested in? Yeah, so there, it's uh, very much like any shareholder experience where you'd have a shareholder conference call and sometimes mm-hmm. uh, decisions are put up to a vote on that shareholder conference call. We are doing the exact same thing. We are choosing great investments. They've already gone through our diligence. We've already done all the work. And then we present them to our shareholders. We call them our skin investors. Mm-hmm. Our skin investors get presented these companies that we've selected and we ask them to weigh in. We actually get them in the game, running the game and saying, do you like this business? Yes or no? Why? It's a great opportunity for us to get some data. And we even give them in the studio, we're going to be filming a lot of these telecasts um, once we can get into a studio together. Uh, yes. <laughs> what we will be actually asking them to debate with each other about those decisions. What fun mm-hmm. is that going to be to really hear yeah. these conversations and introduce them to the characters at the companies to say, okay, here's the leaders, here's the guy in the back of the warehouse that puts the boxes together. Ask them anything you want about this business. So mm-hmm. that's uh, when I say we're giving everyone full access. I wasn't. I'm not kidding. That's you know. Yeah. That's that's exciting. I, I think it's Thanks. a great idea. And then are you on the underfunded uh, groups out there? And we'll talk about how little venture capital money goes to women-owned businesses, let's say, and I'm sure minority-owned businesses. Is there any kind of focus to make sure that the company will invest in women-owned or minority-owned no. businesses? No, not at all. I, and that was intentional. Um, I did not want to perpetuate the bias, or maybe I should say I didn't want to be biased in reverse. So Yes, I understand what you're saying. I, I needed to keep this open to everyone, and I want the crowd, and I want, you know, we have a fiduciary duty to the federal government, but to our shareholders to get them a return and make sure we get them the best investments mm-hmm. possible. Sure. But what I did do to react to the current situation, the human bias is, um, so, so to step back one second, the reason women aren't getting funded the reason, you know, women get less than 2% of venture capital. Minorities get 1% of venture capital, if that. And also, there's 47 states that are nearly completely shut out of venture capital. Uh, many of those states get less than 1%, you know, less than a, a, a minuscule percentage of, of venture capital. And so, when I started doing the research, I saw, oh, I see venture capitalists invest in founders that look like them, live near them, use the same restrooms, went to the same schools. And that's right. a very human experience, right? We're all drawn to things that are familiar. I can't fault them for this, but because mm-hmm. many of their decisions are made that way, that is why that's happening. So I asked the question, wait a minute, what if we asked everyone in America to invest in people who look like them and live near them? What if we can't eliminate the human that's in us? And what if we don't want to? If we invite everyone to get in the game, maybe the face of entrepreneurship will look more like the face of America. So Mm -hmm. to answer your question a different way, on purpose, we chose to keep it open and to see how this went and how the crowd went. And that's also why we have to be very sure that we are targeting every American freely, yes. openly, so that we're not only reaching out to people who read the Wall Street Journal or read Inc. Magazine, but to mm-hmm. every American. Yeah, it's, it's great. It sounds like equality, uh, democracy in action. Huh? Yes, full participation <laughs> capitalism. Yeah. The renewed American dream, I like to call it. Yeah. Um, 
you've been described as a uh, serial entrepreneur, and um, but it's not like you to see yourself as a as an entrepreneur. And in the short time we've gotten to know each other and talked, I see you as someone with an idea, and then you get the click. You get passionate about it. You have a purpose, very purposeful, very mission driven. And then it's just like you have to do it. You can't not do it. Right. And I see you as a very good salesperson. You're persuasive. You connect with people. People believe you when you say things. So just talk about this, uh, the entrepreneur, and how, how you see that as it relates to you. Well, for me personally, uh, I never saw myself as an entrepreneur because I wasn't raised to ever see myself as an entrepreneur. I was raised very much in, uh, as women, even today in my family are raised, you know, you, your goal is to stay home with your kids and have some, uh, marry someone that can take care of you and your kids and not to pursue a career. Um, so I did never saw myself as an entrepreneur then, but now I, maybe I, I redefined being an entrepreneur in my book. You cannot do what you need to do as a founder in my book. For me, I cannot do what I need to do get in the ring, put all my skin in the game, blood, sweat, tears, seven days a week. Nothing is second to this. It's my, it's my primary focus. Uh, I can't do that. I can't fake it. And I think that's why I, someone has once said, when they call me a, sales, a great salesperson, I get living. So I'm like, I'm so much more than a salesperson, damn it. But uh, <laughs> I think- You are, but you are still a great you, salesperson, I think. Well, I had a 100% win rate at Sorch. We never lost an RFP. But um, that's Ooh. because- I was so passionate about it because yes. I be, I knew that I could pull this off. When I looked a customer in the eyeball, they're like, "Ooh, she really she can do this. She's not going." You know, and I remember my clients used to say that, "You run a tight ship, Nicole." But I knew at the end of the day, you um, you knew your product and you knew you could pull it off. And so, for me, I can't imagine when I see I speak a lot often at schools, MBA schools, and and schools that teach entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and I challenge the students that, you know, you really cannot teach entrepreneurship. I love Simon Sinek and his books, like The Why and um, Understanding How. Find out, find your why. Find your why and, um, and realize that unless you find a problem that you must solve, I don't know if you're going to be able to withstand all that's going to get thrown at you to make this a success. Yes. And those are all the things that come up as an entrepreneur. And I owned a company for 17 years. So I know the things that can come up. Yeah. And, uh, and all the risks you had you to that. take. And Susan, how many, how many risks did you have to take? And how many sacrifices did you have to make? And, yes, you know, I, have, I had one entrepreneur, woman entrepreneur, she's like, oh my gosh, they want me to sign capital, for, sign personal for uh, this product I had to buy as a, as a company. And I said, um, you know what, you need to hang it up, quit go get a job. You are not an entrepreneur. Like she was just struggling. And it wasn't even a lot of money, but I'm like, if you weren't willing to put yourself on the line, then, uh, and your own personal finances, this is your personal finances. You know, this is you, uh, forget it. You're not cut out for this. Yeah. I didn't realize how much risk I'd really taken in my company to have it all until the company I sold my company to came in and had a four page list of all the questions around what what they're looking at as far as their liability in taking on my company uh-huh. and it had to do with past employees it had to do with insurance all of the things that might come up and I thought 
this is all the stuff that I've been taking the risk on mm-hmm. that I didn't really, you know, realize. And any one of those things could have yeah. could have fallen, and I, it would have been my personal wealth, my husband's uh, personal wealth. So we do take a lot of risk, but there's yeah. this passion dri- and drive, you know, right? And uh, so your your background, you grew up, uh, I, I believe, in Chicago mm-hmm. in an Italian family. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, your, your family, you alluded to this, uh, your family thought that, since you were a girl, you would uh, naturally get married, have babies, and make spaghetti, right? Yes. <laughs> and the programming <laughs> like worked. I was programmed well. Yeah, you're programmed well. Um, and um, you have this you have this natural curiosity and drive. And um, we didn't talk about your parents or anything. But I was just curious, your parents. Where did this Where did this ambition? Where did this drive come from? Whereas it was it modeled for you anywhere? Um, no, I, uh, recently, um, wrote a book. I didn't write it. I worked with a ghostwriter to read the book and I I had no idea how cathartic that process would be. I think you and I might've talked a little bit about that, but a ghostwriter forces you to ask questions, kind of like a therapist to examine things you never examined before. And when she had asked similar questions to that, I would say, no, you know, I, there is no examples of entrepreneurship. And then all of a sudden she'd start digging and I go, oh, that's right. My two aunts um, who I idolized owned, you know, their own buildings and they were in real estate and they, you know, they, they did that. And then my grandfather, great grandfather who came here from Italy he sold fruit on a cart up and down the alleys of Chicago. And then his sons got into the fruit juice business. And then their sons got into the juice flavor business. And it's like, oh, I guess I had modeling that I didn't realize mm-hmm. I did. But again, I um, it was life's twists and turns uh, that I give full credit for me getting into this. And and I was I always loved working. Like for me, I'd rather be working. I worked when I was 14, never would rather work than be in the classroom any day. And I love I was good at my jobs always. And when I saw this problem in our industry, it was nagging me. And I remember mentioning it even to my husband at the time, like, hey, why not this? And it was just I, I remember now it was like a seed that was starting to grow. And I knew that my marriage was starting to come to an end, um, and like many do, and uh, it, which is very unfortunate. And I just needed something else to do with my heart and my mind. Um, mm-hmm. as, I, as soon as I knew that uh, spaghetti-loving babies weren't imminent and I didn't know what was <laughs> going to happen, I thought, well, I better start doing something with myself. And yeah. now, I'll, now I'll go take that seed that's now sprouted in t- beyond an idea and I'll start pursuing it. And I um, went and took some MBA classes and I started talking uh, to some folks. And so, I, yes, it was modeled for me a little bit, but it, I think it was more, again, that idea that, well, I need to do something with my life and here's a problem I can solve. Right. Yeah. And then you, and again, but some people might see a problem that needs solved and and don't do anything. Yeah. Like you you see a problem that needs solved and you, it's like you can't get it out of your head and you, right. you you need to fix it. It's like almost like this compulsion to fix it. Yeah. Right? I like love when people it. say to me, you know, in conversation, we've all had family and friends like there's like, "Hey, did you see that thing? I had that idea 20 years ago. I can't believe they stole it from me." And I I'm the first <laughs> one to jump down their throat. I'm like, "An idea is nothing unless you actually do something about That's it." Right. You know. And That's right. um, and they're like, hey, I was just talking, relax, back off. But um, it's true. <laughs> we all have ideas. And I have a long list of things I'd like to fix. But it wasn't until I experienced 
um, venture capital that, um, and my, mm-hmm. you know, you go through pain and then the pain, you're like, I want to fix this pain for everyone else going forward. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. One of the things I see that you do that I do, and frankly, I don't, like 90% of people don't do this, Ooh, 80% of what's people this? maybe. And that is that you pick up the phone. Oh. You see something that needs to be done. You see an, uh, an action that needs to be taken and you do it, mm-hmm. y- you know, and I have done that. I've ha- I can tell you probably 20 different opportunities I've had in my career because I picked up the phone or I wrote an email mm-hmm. and I was proactive about it. It may not have worked out, but many times it did. And you, you do that. Mm-hmm. You pick up the phone you call someone, you write them a note, and opportunities come from that. Not yeah. everybody does that. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. I can't imagine not doing it. I think, uh, and people Me like too. you, you're the same way, right? I don't. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think about it. It's just ooh, and I get the impulse. And um, mm-hmm. it's even if it's. Uh, I wonder if State Farm could be a client. I know this woman who's on the board of State Farm. Let me just call her, and you know, like it's. Um, the brain starts working and I, I don't, it's on, I am not in control of it. It's like, I'm just, I'm going to go do this. Um, And the, you know, you bring up the note taking. I did that a lot. Um, I still do that. And it drives me crazy that during COVID we can't send notes to people because everyone's home. They're not at their office. Yeah, they're home. You have to know they're home. That's like one of my secret weapons is to send someone a handwritten note still. I still believe that that's powerful. Um, and I fall before it myself. When someone sends me a handwritten note, I'm all, you know, oh, look, I got mail. You know, it's, like, it's I know, exciting. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I've done that many times and I have some of my greatest mentors and uh, some of my greatest experiences came because I simply wrote someone a thank you note, just mm-hmm. acknowledging that I think they're special and they inspired me. Uh, I yeah, did we're going to talk about. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry. I have some questions about her. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, but I want to talk about I want to talk about this venture capital idea because I, this is something that was so big in in your life and with your baby that your company you started and I was reflecting on this and I was thinking about me as an entrepreneur and just the entrepreneur in general and that is there are a lot of things which demand our attention during a day you know that some things require a little thought and some investigation, other things you really have to take your time on and consider them because they're big. And often we're expected to make decisions with not having all of the information we would like to have, but we have to be decisive. Um, And because things are moving so fast and we're trying to accomplish so much, sometimes we could be, you know, impulsive. And and I've done this when I was Mm -hmm. an entrepreneur. And it made me think about all the things that we have to do as entrepreneurs and all the decisions that have to be made and so forth. And I think in the, and I would like you to tell about the story with, with Zorch, um, that what you know is that you needed money. You had a new technology you wanted to, to explore and you explored uh, the idea of getting some venture capital, having some, you know, equity that you could do more things in your company and you got a term sheet presented it to your attorney, and he said, this looks pretty standard. And then you you signed it, thinking not many strings attached or whatever, but you learned a lot from this. And mm. uh, I know you believe that there are some mistakes you made, and I'd, I'd love for you to talk about what happened, what you were looking for, and how this, how this turned out. 
Yeah. Um, it was probably one of the most life-changing events in my life. And I think it is um, one of the most important things an entrepreneur will do. And, and she needs to give it the, I love what you said in uh, a moment ago about this is something you need to get, pay attention to. And right. I know at the time I was very cocky. I was living the time of my life. I'd pulled off this miracle. I mean, I was, I know yeah. everything I can do anything. I am wonder woman. Like, you know, you can't yeah. stop me. <laughs> and I uh, was moving at 500 miles an hour. I had the eighth fastest growing company in the country. And I, we were dominating, leading in this multi-billion dollar industry. And everyone's like, hey, why can't we get at least to a billion? We need cash to get there, to grow. Um, and I thought, oh, I just can't wait to have venture capitalists in my boardroom. Stupid. I, they're so much smarter than I am. They're going to help me build this to a billion. Oh, I think back, I'm just want to... I'm so mad at myself. But anyway, um, and many of them are. Many of those experiences are wonderful. Mm -hmm. And um, But it needs to happen in a situation where the entrepreneur knows as much about what she's signing up for as the VCs know, right? And I didn't. When it came to my client contracts, I read every word. I knew what everything meant. I could read back to you my client contracts. And I did those all myself. I never even had a lawyer do them. Um, but when it came to this, wow. I deferred. I delegated. Why? It was so such an important decision. I see entrepreneurs doing this all the time where they're like, well, this isn't my wheelhouse. I don't understand that industry. If my lawyer tells me it's standard, I'll just sign it. Well, my lawyer wasn't lying to me either. These are None of these are bad guys, right? They're just running their business in the system that that industry is set up for. Mm -hmm. And my attorney was right. This was all standard. It doesn't mean it's right or I should have signed up for it. And I tell entrepreneurs all the time to do what I didn't do. And there's like just a few things that I wish I had done. I didn't take the time to really get to know the VCs and understand what, um, I took the first term sheet that came across my desk. I wasn't out shopping. Um, I didn't go out and say, hmm, I'm a disruptor. I'm a tech company. I'm in a very big space. I need to go find VCs who live in that space too. I didn't. Mm -hmm. right. The first, the VCs we signed up for had really only done manufacturing, no tech. They'd only done very small deals. They had never done anything this explosive, nothing growing like this. And um, so, yes, they brought some expertise to the boardroom, but it wasn't the right expertise for my business at that time. And um, that was mistake number one is, it, you know, take more time choosing your VC than you do your spouse because you can always get a divorce, but there's no getting rid of a bad VC. Uh, <laughs> and that's for sure. And, and um, so that was number one is to take the time, interview them, go meet the other portfolio companies that you've invested in. You know, this is your yes. baby you're handing over. Take the stinking time to, you know, it would take me months to close an AT&T, but I was real quick to sign that contract. Instead, just said, go have dinner with these people. Find out what kind mm -hmm. of human beings they are. Are they litigious? Yes. Do they love suing people? You know, like what, what do they believe in? And, um, and then the other thing that I wish I had done was I should have said, okay, this is all standard lawyer. Well, then I need to go learn what every one of these words mean means. I need to know what parapasu means, liquidation preferences, block rights, every, you know, tag along, drag along, all these different terms that VCs use. Um, they're standard, especially in a state like Illinois, where I was at the time. That's one of the 47 states that's basically shut out of venture capital. 
So mm-hmm. VCs know you don't have a lot of competition. They know they've kind of got I you. See. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful book called The Innovation Blind Spot by Ross Baird that every entrepreneur needs to read, especially anyone okay. raising capital. Um, but Ross Baird talks about this and about how VCs in these funding deserts uh, can be a little bit more predatory and ask for some more terms that a VC in Silicon Valley, New York, or Boston could never ask for. In New York, Boston, and California, they are wooing you and taking you out to dinner, asking you to take their money, please, because there's so much competition, right? It's a different okay, game yeah. altogether. So depending yeah. on where an entrepreneur, she needs to know the differences. And then take the time to learn what every single one of those words means. Because when I signed that term sheet, my VCs basically had control of my company before they had control of my company. They had control of that boardroom. They could force me to make some decisions I didn't want to make. And ultimately, over time, and they could block me from bringing in any new money, which again, I'm not faulting them. They didn't do anything they weren't supposed to do. That's their job, right? right? They have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. So, This is why, you know, we can't just say, oh, bad guy, don't do this, don't do that. The founder has to take ownership of her own situation and understand what she's getting into. And then don't, because you can't later say, oh, poor me, look what happened. You know, the first thing I did was when they finally did take control, control, I said, how did I get here? You know, I'm I'm smarter than this. I, I, I can't believe I walked into this. And I started doing research. I said, oh my gosh, this happens to entrepreneurs all the time because, attorneys all over the country are telling their clients, this is all pretty standard. It's okay. Because that's true. So until we change the game and we change what's standard, nothing's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. I mean, I've had the same attorney for many years. He's taken me through various partnerships and things. And he did advise me like, you know, hey, think, you know, it's almost like he was talking to me like a friend. You know, Mm -hmm. like, look, you know, this is standard in the industry, but you have to know what you're giving up. You know, it doesn't sound like maybe you got that kind of advice. No, the attorney at the the time was a friend of mine. And I will bet you a million dollars. I was like, hey, I get it. Okay, I got to go back to work. Just, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Just give me the money. Money's money. And all these, every VC is going to be smarter than I am. You know, again, that imposter syndrome that women have so much of where you assume that like I've seen this again and again, I'm sure you have Susan with all the mm-hmm. people you've spoken with mm-hmm. where I just assumed they knew more than I did. And I couldn't wait for their knowledge to come to my company. And oh, so I said, just, yeah. you know, sign, give me the check, give me the money and get these guys in here so they can help me. I need help. And I, yeah. I bet you anything. My attorney probably said something along those lines like yours did, but yeah. I, I again was cocky and not paying attention. And, yeah. Yeah. You know. So lesson learned there. And so it, became clear that they were they had a lot of control within your company and you elected eventually to step down in 2013 and uh it was right about the time they were excited for me to step down it was yeah it was uh there was some mutual yes it was mutual i think and they like many vcs their standard practices you bring in the white guy from the, you know, school they like that they know of and yeah, put them in place. Right and, and cause they think, they think every founder is replaceable. And I think that's another big flaw. And at SkinX at my funds, we will not do that. We will acknowledge mm-hmm. that the founder is um, very important to the company. Right. Important. Um, yeah. yeah. So they have the passion and yeah. So I did step down and 
the company uh, fortunately was sold uh, to a PE firm not too long ago, and now, as, as I said earlier, is continuing to to thrive and and uh, and do well, which makes me really proud as a founder. Mm-hmm. Always, you know, you want sure yeah your company to succeed. Well, it sounds like you you learned a lot the hard way um, about what not to do, and um, you know, it, it didn't work out the way you wanted, but it has led you to starting this new venture, SkinX, which is basically an approach where it's like, you know, let's every American be able to invest in venture capital money in these companies that need money, right, throughout the country, all these 47 states that are underserved. So mm-hmm. it's led you to this. Yes. That's why, mm-hmm. you know, you anytime you say there's a why me, uh, mm-hmm. and people say, just wait, someday you'll see that that happened for a reason. Yeah. And um, my middle name is Providence, which means uh, act of God. It's my grandmother's name, my mother's name. And I believe that so much of my career has been an act of Providence. You know, there's things that happened in my marriage that didn't work out that I, at the time I thought, oh, I'll never survive this. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. Mm. But if that hadn't fallen apart, I would never have looked to do something else with my heart and my mind, right? And I wouldn't have started Zorch. And then when Zorch, oh my gosh, that was the, my greatest achievement in my life. When that fell apart or I lost control, I thought, well, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. But then I felt that stirring inside that said, well, then fix it, you know, make sure you change the game. So, sure. um, yeah, no, yeah, no regrets, no regrets. Yeah, that's neat. Um, I love the story that you told about faking it until you make it and uh, it's it's the situation when you were with Sorch and you were courting these big companies and you you know people were saying well just go to the small companies and you're like no I want AT&T I want State Farm so you're courting you know AT&T and I think you you have them nailed you have, you've got a contract and they have a check the box on their checklist you got to do a site visit and you sort of had to fake that you were this big big successful company tell me tell me what happened yeah there was a lot of faking it till you make it uh, when I first started out um, and uh, the but it was always faking it in quotations right in italics because I knew that my suppliers like big pens and Titles golf balls and Hanes t-shirts they were all the ones serving our customers so I asked them if you're going to do a site visit right. that's the place you got to go because that's where the magic happens my <laughs> office we're a tech company my office is not what you're expecting they were it was between us and Staples when I went to Staples it was like this mammoth office and all these people and phones buzzing and you know thing and I knew that was we were up against them that they're going to come to my little loft in River North Chicago and see my two employees and all these empty desks so I packed the desks with my family members they all brought their own computers in and folders. And I told them, you know, we're going to walk around. I like, you know, orchestrated it like a ballet. Like you're going to walk around like you're walking into each other's offices. And then family members at home, I had them call into the phone. So the phones were ringing, 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 ringing. And then we even ordered stuff to be delivered. Like, so the UPS guy's coming in and the, the postal lady's walking in. And it was just busy, 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 action, action. And the best part was I put, I made a big sign. I put it in the lobby and the sign said, Zorch, welcome to Zorch reception, third floor. And I had made it look like a permanent sign. And my two employees and family members like, where are you going with third floor? You got, you got two, you know, 10 square feet of the third floor. And and I said, not always. Someday I'll have this whole building. And AT&T doesn't know. It was implying that 
reception was on the third floor and we had all these other floors going on, right? It gave the perception that we were bigger than we were. And, um, and it worked. We won the account and um, eventually we did have more than the third floor. We, they now have, I think, like four floors or something in that building. Yeah. So that was prophetic. It didn't take long for us to take over other floors. But those two women, there were two women, two, one was in procurement and one was in branding that came to visit. They both ended up becoming very dear friends. Like all my clients did. I absolutely adored them. And like most people do, you take your clients out to dinner later. And I always used to ask them for the playback, the pro, the postmortem. What made you choose us? Because then if you know what they like about you, you can use that again and again and again. Right. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, it was the um, energy when we came to your site, your your office. (laughs) And I was like, well, uh, they, they said, you know, as you looked us in the eye and we knew you could pull this off. We never had any doubt. And they also believed in our model. They said, you know, everyone claims savings, but you actually had fixed the business. You fixed the industry in a way that you would deliver savings. But the third thing, when they said that, I said, okay, yeah, well, confession time, now that we've saved you millions of dollars and we pulled this off, they loved it. And they still tell that story to everyone every day. And I was like, you know, it wasn't, I wasn't, misleading you in any way you could go to any of our manufacturers and you'd be blown away but you insisted on coming to our little loft and right. i knew you were expecting to see a big old school distributor not a tech company and so they loved it and every you know no harm no foul and well, it was a great uh, story fun. it's like yeah. you know okay you want to you want to see a real company i'm going to bring my mom and dad <laughs> my sisters and brother you know all yes. right come in here and look like you're doing something you know <laughs> yeah yeah it was a blast i love it um, let's see. Uh, wh- one of my last questions here. I love uh, this approach and what you're talking about, and that is, women are often told uh, to network. Uh, women mm-hmm. are told that, and we don't often tell men. Just network, just network. As much as we tell women, and you don't believe really in networking, Not do at you? All. Talk about that. Well, just like I didn't have time to read my, you know, contract for my venture capitalist. I don't think you should have time to go hang out three, four times a week or once a, you know, who has, if you have time to go hang out at some event and listen to a panel discussion and then try to network with 300 people in a room or however many it is and put your name tag on and go walk around and say, hi, my name is Nicole. You want to do business with me? Like something's wrong. Something's broken. And um, you're just, you, if you can have that time, then something's not right. And I see it all the time that people, their greatest advice is go network, 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 network. And I like that is just such a mistake to advise young people, especially to do that. Or older folks that are getting back into an industry or launching a new industry. You need to be so laser focused on who you need to contact. And then you go find that person. Yeah. I can tell you at an event with 100 people all having cocktails, that is not where you're going to find that person. Yeah. Now, in, this, right. my, in my day, we didn't have LinkedIn, uh, you know, and now people ask or LinkedIn anyway. But, um, you know, we didn't have the technology you have today to connect with people. Um, so I use all of that. I always used very targeted approach. Of, like I said earlier about that State Farm board member, mm-hmm. I am a member of the Chicago Network. Uh, yes. I am a member of C200. I don't, didn't go to a lot of events, but I was always there answering the phone and helping other members when they needed to meet someone, or they needed to find someone. Then when I needed, I say, hey, there's this woman, she's on the board of the State Farm, and I'm pitching them, I need to get a hold of her. Okay, so there's like, it's man to man, right? It's you like help then you're, them, they help yes. you, right? 
And yeah. it's very one, you know, one to one to one stepping stones to get to someone connected, not buckshot where you shoot 300 people in a room. Let's make it targeted. And I think that we talked earlier about writing handwritten notes. I still yes. think that's the most powerful way to connect with someone in it and do it in a way that you're not asking for something. Um, that's my way of networking. I just mm-hmm. want to acknowledge, hey, I think you're awesome. I have nothing I want from you, mm-hmm. but I just think you're great. I did that with yeah. Mayor Daly, who became a dear friend, and we worked together very hard in Chicago Public Schools, and I built a fun program there at his, with his leadership. But that all came just because I wrote him a letter thanking him for the resources in Chicago that were funded by the city um, that made me an entrepreneur. Never, I yeah. just said, if I can ever help you. And then I did the same thing with Christy Hefner. Yeah, who, that's where I was um, going to go with your uh, Christy Hefner. Yeah, tell me yeah, about that. She um, is a Chicago, I, she's an icon, you know, everywhere because she's, I think, the la- largest sitting CEO of a Fortune 500. I hope I get that right. Um, she had the longest tenure in that role of any other CEO in a Fortune 500 company. And, um, but in Chicago, she was, you know, incredible. And, and I also love what she did with the Playboy brand and how right. she was such a feminist and such a liberal and a progressive, yet mm-hmm. she was celebrating sex and, and women and all those sorts of things. And I thought, well, that's, you know, I really liked her. So I wrote, when I was in Inc. 500, I sent her the magazine in a note. And I said, thank you for being an inspiration to me as a Chicagoan, as a CEO, and as a woman. Never thought I'd hear back. And I got a call right away from her office and said, Christy would like to have lunch with you. It's like, oh, oh my wow. gosh, what fun. Yeah. We met and had lunch, uh, and she said, you know, I've been following you. And I was like, what? You know, that was so much fun. And um, she uh, said, okay, you need to join the Chicago uh, Network, which she's a founder of. You need to join the C200, which she's a founder of. Mm-hmm. And um, then she just started being my mentor and friend. I know everyone hates that word, mentor, but, um, you know, she is that friend that'll say, hey, you got to lose some weight, or hey, you got to – this is, a, this is a stupid idea. Like there's things your friends won't tell you that um, you know, my friends do and my family does because they're all very blunt. But Christy <laughs> is that great uh, advisor and partner that when I started SkinX, she's like, I don't know. Uh, she would point out all the things that didn't work about it and yeah. push me to make it better. And now, and she's very much involved in um, the success of SkinX. She was there with me and walked me into uh, the heads of media empires to pitch them and, and tell them about skin. And that all came from me just taking a moment and sending her a thank you note and, yeah. um, yeah, and doing her targeting. proud along the way too, right? Like, you know, all along the way, I've never let her down. I've always made her um, proud that she would, you know, bring me into a room or into a meeting so that you yeah. got to do that too. Right. But it was, sure. uh, it's been a wonderful relationship. Yeah. She, um, Christy Hefner is Hugh Hefner's daughter. Uh, He's since since passed. Uh, she was chairman and CEO of Playboy Enterprises from 1988 to 2009, um, and then the pres- uh, president before then. Um, but Hugh Hefner began Playboy, and Playboy Enterprises is much more than a than a magazine. But it's interesting that she is a feminist and you know such a successful businesswoman. And Playboy, you know, some would say. Um, has a history of exploiting women. So h- how, do, how do you reconcile that? Uh, I don't see it that way at all. I no. think uh, she was celebrating the beauty of women and, and mm. uh, their, as was their brand. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a very intelligent brand that um, 
you know, there's a market and uh, she'll do a much better job of answering this question than I ever would. So I won't even try to, to touch it. But for me personally, mm-hmm. I actually admired that fact about her. You know, there is a world we can't just ignore sex. You know, you can't just ignore the fact that men find women attractive and That's right. and you need yeah. to serve that market in some way. Christy was the one responsible for the Playboy channel. She was the one that built, which now, you know, people are like, well, of course, but she was a complete innovator, a trailblazer. Of and okay. of that, and she turned that business into something monumental from a brand licensing perspective. You know, she's so much more than Hef's daughter. She turned that, saved the business and turned it into this monumental brand mm-hmm. um, and led it through some really tough times and then uh, built it to a great place. And then she was ready to step down. Mm-hmm. And since then, she's done some amazing things at Canyon Ranch and some other places uh, where she's proved her chops. Um, sad mm-hmm. that, you know, just because you're the boss's daughter, the former boss's daughter, you think that there's some nepotism there. But she uh, she did a lot for that company. No, she did. She was uh, regarded as, I mean, 88, 1988, there weren't many women chairmen, CEOs of companies. And um, I looked her up to, uh, to see what she's doing now. And it looks like she's, one of the things she's doing is she's uh, behind a beauty and wellness product uh, incubator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And she sits on many boards. And then she also runs the uh, Hugh M. Hefner uh, First Amendment Rights Foundation. I'm not sure if I got that right. But that I'm super proud of, too. Proud for her. um, Because uh, Hef's Playboy versus Playboy Enterprises versus United States of America, that precedent was used more often than any other in cases fighting for people's First Amendment rights Hmm. um, than any other case. And as I was going to court for fighting for some of my rights when I was losing my company, Mm -hmm. uh, my lawyers were uh, pulling up stuff from like 1970s in Texas. I said, whoa, 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 there's no precedent sooner. They said no, because, you know, entrepreneurs don't win lawsuits. They get settled and they write people, write them a check to shut up. And um, I looked to what the, Hef- the Hugh M. Hefner Foundation does for First Amendment rights. And Christie's very much an advocate for that. Uh, they, they, um, I would suggest everyone checks that foundation out. They're doing amazing things to protect our rights. Hmm. And uh, so there's, it's just a lot of fun to be yeah. in that stratosphere with her. Yeah, no, she seems like a neat, very neat uh, lady. I'd love to meet her sometime. Nicole, thanks for joining me today. You've been great. It's been wonderful getting to know you and your companies, and I wish you the best in SkinX. I am going to follow it. Thank uh, you. Thanks for joining me. This has been great. It has. Thanks, Susan. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.